This is Passport to Everywhere, an incredible worldwide journey as your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley, transports you to dream destinations, introduces you to extraordinary guests from all over the world, showcases the current state of travel, shares valuable insights, takes you behind the scenes at some of the most iconic hotels, and explores the future of travel. This is your your Passport to Everywhere. The World Monuments Fund, WMF for short, is a nonprofit dedicated to saving the world's most treasured places so they can be appreciated and studied by future generations. Since its inception in 1965, the fund has partnered with local communities, governments, and preservationists to safeguard more than 700 sites in 112 countries. Perhaps one of the most popular sites on this list is Angkor Archaeological Park in Siem Reap, Cambodia. The complex, once the seat of the Khmer Empire, stretches over 150 square miles and contains dozens of magnificent Hindu and Buddhist temples built between the 9th and 15th centuries. The most famous, of course, being Angkor Wat, the largest religious monument in the world. The World Monument Fund was one of the first organizations to survey these temples after the devastating Cambodian civil war and genocide in the late 1960s and 1970s. Years of strife left the ancient monuments ravaged and Cambodian citizens devastated. Over the last few decades, World Monuments Fund has undertaken a variety of rebuilding, conservation, and capacity building initiatives, including, but not limited to, training local crew to be the stewards of these sacred monuments. Here with me today is Ginevra Boato, WMF's Regional Representative for Southeast Asia, overseeing the Angkor Archaeological Park project. Originally from Italy, Ginevra has lived in Cambodia and worked at the complex for over a decade, and today we'll discuss everything from the work her team is doing to both engage local communities and restore the site for posterity, to how travelers can tread lightly in fragile places. And of course, we'll share what you need to know to start planning your trip to the eighth wonder of the world, Angkor Archaeological Park. Listen to new episodes of Passport to Everywhere, Thursdays at noon, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 132. The journey continues. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs-Bradley. Ginevra Boato, welcome. Thank you for joining me today from Cambodia. I'm so excited to talk to you about one of my favorite countries in Southeast Asia and one of the most remarkable sites I've ever had the privilege of visiting. So I would love to start with how you as an Italian ended up in Cambodia working on this project. Can you take me through that? So I just graduated from university, actually from my PhD. And at that time of my life, I thought, well, I need to break a few months away from Italy to understand what I'm going to do next in life. So I had this opportunity to come to Cambodia through a European voluntary service uh, program. And the plan was to stay six months in Phnom Penh in the capital, you know, to volunteer for a local organization. And actually it was a great program because we were 12 people from Europe and uh, it was an exchange with other Cambodians and we got to learn Khmer, We got to take a lot of classes in the history, politics, uh, culture, and so on. And I remember after a couple of months, I said to myself, I don't think I'm going to go back after six months. I like it too much. 
And that was a turning point in my life. So I did my six months and then I had to go back home just to tell my family, oh, I bought a one-way ticket to Cambodia. I don't know when I'll see you again. <laughs> so then I was back. I continued volunteering for the same organization. And then I had the chance to start working for the War Monuments Fund because they happened to be looking for someone at the moment when I was starting to look for a job. So our paths crossed. And so here I am after, oh my God, 11 years with the War Monuments Fund and uh, 12 in Cambodia. And what did you get your PhD in? So I have a background in science and technology for cultural heritage. So I took plenty of science classes, but also archaeology and art history. And I specialize in laser scanning applied to cultural heritage, which is how to make 3D virtual models for cultural heritage, small objects, but also large objects. So working at Angkor Wat, I mean, it sounds very accidental, your journey (laughs) there, but in some ways it has to be the ultimate fantasy for your degree to be able to work on this particular monument. Yes, yes, it is. That's true. It sounds very accidental, but in the end, it just makes so much sense. And, you know, to tell you the honest truth, so we, I think we graduated from university at that time, we were 11 or 12. And I think just two of us work in cultural heritage. Everyone is in Italy, just one person is working cultural heritage. So I thought, well, I don't know if I'll ever work in cultural heritage. (laughs) And then eventually it happened. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it is a dream to be able to use all what you've learned and really put it into action. But it is a dream to be here. I mean, surrounded by people who are extremely passionate about what they do. They really believe in the impact of what we're doing. And I work with, uh, well, only with Cambodian people here at uh, in Siem Reap. It's a great experience every day. I don't need motivation boosters. <laughs> so I, I've been lucky enough to go to... Siem Reap and Angkor Wat and many of the temples around that area a couple of times. But for people who haven't been, can you explain the significance? I mean, it was a kingdom. And I remember one of the things that blew me away when I first went was understanding that in the, I think it was the ninth century, the kingdom of, of um, Angkor was bigger than the city of Paris at the time. <laughs> But I would love to hear you talk a little bit about what makes this such a special place. Yeah, as you said, historically, for sure, there is an immense value. You know, once we get to understand a little bit of the history of Angkor, we are really, say, humble (laughs) by this. But it's not just that correctly. I think, you know, especially in light of what the history of Cambodia has been in the 20th century. And so if we think about this 20 years of, civil strife, I think we can see clearly how Angkor has always been, but has become more and more a powerful symbol for rebirth. You know, a reference for people like, we've been this great. We can be strong again. We can be autonomous. We can be anything again. So it's like the, I say, the the memory of of a great past. And it's something that is always very much present in people's hearts. And if you look at Cambodian, uh, the Cambodian flag, you see that there is, a, there is Angkor Wat, actually. The peaks, uh, the, the towers of Angkor Wat in the, in the flag. And that's, well, that's quite remarkable. And it's been in Cambodian's flag for, uh, for over a century. 
So it means, I think it tells a lot about how much people care about this place. And the other thing is about the fact that it's a park where people still live today. So you have tens of thousands of people still living here and they work around the temples and they have you know, family traditions connected to the temples besides what is religious or cultural, but you know, their, their history are very intimately connected to those places. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, it's funny you say that about what it represents today in light of the strife, because the first time I went was in 1999. And it was very soon after you could start traveling to Cambodia. Mm -hmm. And there were very few travelers there. I remember obviously learning about the history of the war and learning that in the Pol Pot genocide, one in four Cambodians had been killed. You know, so every single person you saw had been really deeply affected by the genocide and the war. And I was with a photographer and we'd gotten up really early in the morning to go to Angkor Wat at sunrise. And there was nobody there, but some of the monks in the orange robes who were practicing at the temple. And all of a sudden, at one point, as the sun had come up, we looked and there were cars pulling up and it was a pilgrimage day. It was a holy day. And people were street, they'd come from all over the country to come and worship. And it was this kind of moment for me where a monument went from being a piece of history to being an alive, religious, spiritual beacon. It was just one of the most amazing travel memories I have. Obviously, now when you go to Angkor, it's a little bit more crowded. <laughs> so it's a little different. But I think, you know, you touched too on the importance of the Cambodian people. And having lived there now for as long as you have, I'd be so curious to hear what you think it is that makes Cambodia such a special place. You know, the thing that struck me the most when I came to Cambodia at the very beginning is the fact that people do not give anything for granted on what they have. So they are very grateful for any gift that life has given them. I think at that time, maybe coming from uh, spoiled <laughs> Italy, <laughs> spoiled Europe, I think it, it meant a lot to me. I don't want to think of Cambodia as just the post-disaster country because I don't think it's anymore just that. Uh, I think it's much more, it's become much more. But I think there's a, if you still, if you think about those 20 years and you see how people are still grateful to life for whatever they get, I don't know, access to public health, access to university, a meal, a meals every day. I see that. And I see also a country that... And I mean, I say this as, a, as living here, I say this also as a professional. I feel like there are people in this country, again, who value a lot any resource that is being brought here. So, I mean, I, I, I say really honestly that a lot of the people we work with even within the government too, I can see how people have stepped up over the years. And I just have a bit over 10 years span of observation, but still, we can see major strides because really people, you know, got the most uh, that they could for any resource that was brought in, international resources. I should go back. I'd love to have you explain to people what the World Monuments Fund mission is. So World Monuments Fund is a nonprofit private organization uh, that was founded in 1965. So we have almost, uh, well, 55 years 
of experience on the ground. The mission of War Monuments Fund is to preserve the built heritage of humanity all over the world. But the way we do it, and I think we, this is really something special about us, is we work extremely closely to uh, local communities. So we work for local communities and with them. And I think what makes us special is the respect for local communities and their wisdom. Okay, so for sure, our final goal is to have buildings preserved. Let's put it in a very simple way. Buildings, I mean, we're, we're called monuments, fund, but we don't only deal with monuments. We have really in our projects any kind of, uh, of built heritage, any material, any time, any period. But the idea is really to bring a, a positive social impact wherever we work. Okay, which which can be, you know, socioeconomic, but also in terms of uh, recognition of people's heritage of narratives. And Encore has been one of the most, I would say, flagship program for World Monuments Fund. You've been there for a very long time and the work there, you know, has been very important. Can you talk a little bit about how the park was affected by the Cambodian Civil War and then what state it was in when you arrived and, and when World Monuments started working? Yeah, so during the, the 20 years of uh, civil war and, uh, and civil strife and anything that happened in, this, in that time, I think in general we can say, uh, we can talk about the park a bit being a abandoned, let's say, so not receiving the same attentions, the same support, that the same care that it used to be receiving until just before, until the, say, the very beginning of the 1970s, when there was certainly still presence of the French government, but also of Cambodian authorities uh, devoted to this. So I think, you know, this mainly meant that there was nobody removing weeds. If you don't remove the trees and the plants, the vegetation overgrowth, they will just come back and eat up everything, you know, and swallow everything. So I think this, this is the first thing. And I think we can say certainly that there were structural conditions that, of course, they were never addressed over this time. There were mines, bombs that were, well, mines that were put in everywhere around the, the park. As well, there were bombs that were detonated, and there were some, uh, also some areas, some temples that were used for, um, for stocking of ammunition and so on. But that said, I think it, it was not too, it, it wasn't too bad. They, it's not like the temples were majorly impacted in, in, a neg- in a negative sense. And I think actually the Khmer Rouge, they were themselves, they were still very even though they wanted to start everything from scratch, as we know, they couldn't forget this past. It's a heritage that is really so heavy and so present that they couldn't just forget about it. Okay, so let's talk about the time when we're Monuments Fund and came in the country. And, you know, I have given you a, a sense of what the situation was. And I think, so we're talking about a bit over 30 years ago. So first mission, uh, our past president, Bonnie Burnham, came at the end of 1989. So the country reopening to the world, an international appeal by the then king of Cambodia, Norodom Sihanouk, to, for international, uh, the international community to come in and help save Angkor. So 
I think the most striking thing that at that time World Monuments Fund noticed is more related to the human resources in the country, which were eventually non-existing. Because, you know, any person with a, with a degree, with any kind of association to international people, to foreigners, any person different than a, than a farmer, I mean, would have been killed. So most of, you know, professional caretakers, let's say, either fled the country or were killed. And this also for the people who were working on the temples. I mean, technicians, many of them just, uh, just didn't, didn't make it. So we saw this as the most threatening uh, condition that needed to be addressed. And that's why at the time where Monuments Fund focused on a long-term training uh, program to recreate you have to think also that the university, Royal University of Fine Arts was the only university providing people with a degree in architecture, archaeology, and so on. And it had been closed for 20 years. So there was a missing generation of heritage professionals. So we wanted to contribute to recreating it. At that time, we're talking about, I think, 1991, archaeology, architecture, faculties reopened. And we got some of the first students, the first generation, and some of them are still working, still around. It just evolved so much since then, you know, 30 years of, of training, uh, of opportunities. Uh, now, you know, at that time where Monuments Fund, you know, employed uh, several international specialists who would come to the country, would spend time in Anchor and give training and then assist, you know, the trainees and doing their tasks and so on. But now we are a team of 80 people and I'm the only foreigner. And wow. everything in this organization is designed, managed, implemented by Cambodian people. And I can tell you, this isn't the reality of all the international teams working at Anchor. But the, we really invested a lot in, okay, you're competent, you can make a good job, you can step up. And yeah. I think it's working very well. Many of my colleagues have also consulted for other teams at Anchor. They consulted for other uh, groups in the country. They consulted abroad for other projects of WMF in, uh, in Southeast Asia. So <laughs> I say that it's a very successful story. <laughs> You've got a great local team in place, and that's obviously taken a long time to build. There are still a lot of challenges that remain. What are the biggest concerns for you and the World Monuments Fund in terms of what threatens the cultural heritage at Angkor now? Well, I think that, I think now we can say with a certain degree of safety that we have the capacities in place to do cultural heritage preservation, good, uh, good quality cultural heritage preservation. I think, you know, this is, I mean, probably obvious, but tourism management is uh, critical. So we have done Epnombakain, which is our largest project at Anchor, and it's really the focus of our intervention uh, now. You know, we have work with the APSAR National Authority, our partner and the managing agency for the park. We worked together towards a visitor management plan for the Temple of Nombakai, where there used to be, I'm not kidding, like four or 5,000 people. And it's a very small temple, but it's on top of a hill. So you can get to see the whole countryside and 
you can see Angkor Wat as well. So we came up together with this visitor management plan, which actually was very successful. And it was the first of its kind at Angkor. So how do you implement a visitor management plan? Because I do think, you know, I've read a lot about the over-tourism threat to the park in particular. You can't have thousands of people walking on stones that are hundreds of years old and not ultimately wear them down and do damage. So how do you successfully balance the sort of need for protection of the site with the idea that, you know, you want travelers to be able to see it? Well, that's certainly the difficult part of it. So because you need to introduce limits, limits in the number of people, limits for the time of visitation and so on. The first thing is you need to tailor the solution specifically to the site you are looking at. And the second thing is eventually we're very lucky at Angkor because there are hundreds of temples, hundreds of, uh, of monuments within the park. So you really can adopt this like a, this large view of the site, you know, an extended view on the site that allows you to say, okay, so we can have this many people and we can move them around the temples. You can, it's not like everyone needs to go necessarily all the same places. Of course, people have preferences. We know what the top five or six is, but I think, you know, we can play around and this is, it's, it's not probably the easiest task, but this is something that we all want to play on. And what do you think travelers need to be aware of when they're visiting archaeological sites like Angkor? Because I I think, you know, for many decades, it was something travelers didn't think about the impact of their visits. And now, thankfully, they are starting to think about it. What kind of advice would you give to people who want to be respectful, responsible travelers, you know, who are taking care of sites while at the same time enjoying them? Yeah, that's uh, absolutely an important part of, uh, of it. I would say, well, first you come prepared. So it means uh, the Anchor Park already has a kind of a code of conduct. And I know that the best hotels normally talk about this, fortunately. And that includes, you know, being aware. It, the, the message is really that one needs to be aware that this is not just a, a heritage site. There are, as we said, people are living here. People come here for praying. We are in Cambodia. It's, I know Simrip is very much developed. Cambodia is developing extremely quickly, but this is still a, a country where uh, there are a lot of traditions and you know, there is a, a different approach than Western societies to things. So dress code is important, I would say. I think that is something so many Western travelers are really don't realize how offensive they are just because they're uneducated. I would say dress code is important. So people should, you know, should not wear revealing clothes, should have their, their shoulders and their knees covered. That's uh, the first thing I would say. Well, we've seen also, it, it would be good to <laughs> avoid a public display of affection. And I'm not talking about holding hands and you know kids, but this is not a culture where PDA is a common. I would say, well, of course, there is this no smoking and no littering. And I think also, you know, having respect for people, like not just taking pictures without asking for permission, especially I've seen it with monks. 
people, oh, can I take a selfie with you? Just come and get close. No, 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 no. <laughs> I cannot touch a, a mark like this. You know, always need to ask. I mean, it's not a zoo, you know? So it's important to ask and be mindful where we are. And the last thing I would add is for a mindful traveler is always keep in mind that as we as travelers are looking to be in, towards people, people locally are looking towards us. So I believe in the fact that we should be good role models. Yeah. And if you have a friend, Ginevra, who's coming to visit for the first time, what kind of advice do you say to them? How long would you have them stay? What kinds of, how would you suggest they structure their time? What are the most important things for them to see or maybe to read and understand before they come? Well, I suggest that, you know, sometimes people come and just want to stay two days. And like, what sense are you going to get of Angkor, of Siem Reap, of Cambodia if you spend two days? You need to allow at least, uh, I mean, I would say four days at least, yeah. I think two days at the temples would be good. And I normally also suggest that probably the, the second temp, the second day or half of the second day or a third day is done by bicycle. And I always suggest, please go for a stroll in the countryside. Don't just stay down. You got to see the countryside. Get yourself lost in the middle of nowhere with a, with a guide. <laughs> I always say, if you have a tour guide, it's the best because you need an introduction to appreciate everything. And that's valid also for the temples. You know, I do not recommend visiting a million temples because it's an overwhelming experience. And if you are not prepared enough, it is hard to say, oh, wait, was it the Jay of Armand Seven? Was it the Bayonne style? Was, which temple was it that we visited? I don't remember. I mean, few, but well selected. As I said, a visit to the countryside. I think one itinerary that I suggest is also visiting the nearby Phnom Kulen. It's uh, probably about 40, 40 minutes from, uh, from Siem Reap. It's a hill. It's still within the park, but it's very much less visited. And there you have the opportunity to do homestay. So sleep with people in the house of people in this hill and visiting ruins of temple in the middle of the jungle. And, you know, you can see the caves where the hermits were staying and spending time. I mean, very few people do it, but it's a beautiful experience. There's a community center organizing these visits. I always suggest that. I suggest also you know, maybe the, the Royal Gardens, but this is outside of the park, Royal Gardens in town. It's, you know, it's a small town, so it's easy <laughs> to spot the, the major landmarks. But it's nice to go where people are being very lively. There, there are things happening where kids play at the end of the day. And it was nice during COVID. People were doing it a lot in the temples. It, it, it felt a bit surreal, really, the, the first year. And the last thing always I suggest, of course, is also possibly a, a, a croisier cruise on a boat cruise in the, in the Mekong at sunset. Oh, that's magic. And on your way back to Siem Reap, you know, everything is completely dark. But the houses, actually the floating houses of the people there, they are lit. So you can see inside their houses. That's really beautiful. And it's still, you know, it's, it's very respectful, I find, you know, 
Yeah, that's great advice. I have to say, when I went with my kids a number of years ago, we did exactly, we did a bike ride out to the countryside. And and as you said to a guide, we had an amazing guide who led us through farms and we met some families and then yeah. he took us to a tiny abandoned temple. And it was like we were Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, it was just us. There was nobody there and it was magical. And there's no way we could have done that without spending time with him. Exactly. I mean, at the end, you come here to learn more about a country and what's the best way of doing it than, uh, than spending time with locals. Yeah. And so outside of Siem Reap, what areas of, of Cambodia do you recommend people consider visiting on, the, on their first trip to Cambodia? I love Phnom Penh. That's been my, my first love for Cambodia, certainly has been Phnom Penh. I like of Phnom Penh, of, of course, you know, in this over 10 years I've been here, it changed uh, a lot, but there are still, you know, some very authentic areas really that I love visiting. I quite like going for a walk on the Sihanouk Boulevard and the riverside, either in the very early morning, like uh, 5.30, 5.00 a.m., or at the end of the day. So let's say, uh, yeah, like 4.30 or so onward. And, you know, near the, you, in this walk, you know, you pass by the Royal Palace, there are street vendors, and you can sit in the garden just, uh, you know, and have a chat with people. I, I love that. I like also going to uh, Orusai Market. Again, that's a nice experience also for all the, for your, for the, your sense of the smell. The, the smells are very strong there, yeah. And uh, at the end of the day, there's, a, you know, there are street vendors there too and food stalls. So it's, uh, it's nice to be there as well. And, you know, you can make some nice walks like this. When I go there, I like to stay around a street to under 40. And, you know, there, it's not far from the, from the National Museum, uh, from the Royal Palace, a uh, bit of parks around. And that's an area also where you have this, uh, the giant hornwheels sometimes passing by. I've started seeing them. I think they've been reintroduced also at uh, that time, but during COVID. So it's yeah. like a sweet memory of COVID. I remember, we, you know, the only thing you could do was you couldn't get out of the country because it would have been difficult to get back in. So the only thing you would do, you would travel to Phnom Penh. <laughs> and then, you know, you had this giant hornbills greeting you in the morning. Have you had a lot of visitors coming back since the borders reopened? Or does it still feel somewhat more quiet than it did pre-pandemic? Certainly more quiet than it did pre-pandemic. but I think slowly, by slowly, we're going back. We're getting back there. Oh no, it's uh, it's much better than it was uh, a year ago or so. And I want to ask, how can people support World Monuments Fund because it's an amazing organization that it has projects all over the world. I know each year you release a watch list, and I'd be curious to know what some of the other imperiled sites are in Southeast Asia and how people can contribute and support World Monuments Fund. Yes, thank you, Melissa. I will start with the watch. So every two years, we run this advocacy program called The Watch, as you said, and we collect nominations from all over the world, from any community. So local communities, university, professors, uh, local administration, and so on. And we ask people 
what is a site you care very much about and you would like to see protected. You know, we collect over 200, 250 nominations every two years and we make a list of 25 sites, which we think are most challenging or present the most opportunities, especially, you know, we, we care about things such as underrepresented heritage, climate change, imbalanced tourism and crisis. I think in the, it's interesting that in this current watch, so the 2022 watch, we have a site in Cambodia that's a very different aspect of Cambodian heritage compared to the, to the monuments at Angkor because it's the cultural landscape of the Bunong people. It's an indigenous minority, Mondulkiri, which is in the, uh, in the east of Cambodia. We want to help the, the Bunong. We are helping the Bunong people to document invent- and inventory their cultural landscape, which is threatened by development uh, processes. In the recent watch, we also have sites, you know, very different sites from Nuri, the pyramids of Nuri in Sudan, which are threatened by wind-blown sand and rising water table encroachment. We have sites in, uh, in Yemen, the site of Socotra, okay, in the islands of Socotra, and it's about acknowledgement of the cultural heritage of the, the islands. We have Garcia Pasture. Again, a very different example. This is in Texas, a traditional territory, which is threatened by industrial development and the community there lacks the recognition as a, as a federal tribe. Maritime station of Lisbon, very, very diverse sites. So we welcome any form of uh, help, any form of support for the watch sites. And I invite you and the listeners to check our list on our website, wmf.org. And that is the, the best way, I would say, also to uh, make a donation to War Monuments Fund. And if you like, you can also specify to which site this should go. So if someone is interested to support Anchor, please just specify that it should go to Anchor and then the money would just go to Anchor, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Geneva. And and I'd like to just ask one last question. What are your sort of future plans with WMFA in Cambodia? So for uh, the moment, as I was saying, we our major focus is a Phnom Bakain temple. So we are focusing on that. And in the future, we would like to eventually build an interpretation center for Phnom Bakain. There, It is one of the most visited temples in the whole park. And uh, there are so many stories that could be told about it, so many opportunities to engage not only tourists, but also locals, you know, and a better understanding of uh, this temple and Angkor as well. One other thing which we are planning to do and we're working with, on it with the Absar Authority is qualification for the heritage form. And as I said, 30 years of investment in training, capacity building, but we would like also the foreman, you know, to have a specific qualification and recognition of what they've learned. Because, you know, it's also a way for the country, for the government to see that heritage preservation is a career. One other thing we are discussing now with Absar is the training for the, the cleaners of the temple. So the people who basically, when you come to Anchor, you see them sweeping all the time, the sweepers also, okay? Most of the times these people do not have any preparation to their job? Do they know how to, when they clean your stone, that they should be 
mindful not to touch the stone and why should they know it i mean uh it would be important for them to know this and many other things and again you see it's always an opportunity also to dignify to give dignity to people for their job fantastic gina but thank you so much for joining us and sharing your passion for Angkor and for working so hard on preserving the site that's important to not just the Cambodians, but for all of us. It's really a pleasure and I hope to see you in Cambodia soon. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for the opportunity to express my passion verbally. <laughs> and I thank you for your many questions. Thanks so much. Huge thank you to Ginevra for joining us today. To learn more about World Monuments Fund, check out their website at wmf.org. Coming up after the break, I'll be talking about how to plan a trip to Siem Reap, the gateway to Angkor. Share the show. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley. Streaming now on all podcast platforms. Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley. The international adventure continues. So, this week on Destination Hacks, we are going to be discussing Siem Reap, the gateway to Angkor. And I have Catherine Nathanson, our director of Indigo Productions, in the studio with me because she is just back from a recent trip there. And so, the two of us are going to pool our expertise to give people insight into how to make the most of a trip to this very special place in Cambodia. Yes, I was actually just there. I got to meet Ginevra or Gina in person. She was the host of a virtual experience we conducted at Phnom Bikhain Temple in Anchor. So I was very lucky to have the experience to get to do that. And because I was there on this video shoot, I spent seven whole days in Siem Reap. So have a lot of new intel to share. Lucky you. I've never, I mean, I guess combined in all of my visits, because I've been there now three times, I've probably stayed there more than seven days, but not all in a row. That's pretty amazing. First off, you stayed seven days. I would recommend the first time person probably stay three to four days, which is also what Gina recommended. Do you have a favorite hotel? I have a couple of favorites, but I'm curious to hear yours. Yeah, what a, it is a tough question. There's actually amazing hotel product in Siem Reap. A couple of the Indigari favorites are the Raffles, Pum Bai Tong, and Amansara. And Pum is P-H-U-M, which actually means village in Khmer. I would say of these three, my favorite was Pum Bai Tong, which is a little bit out of town. You have to take either a taxi or a tuk-tuk there. It's one to two dollars to take this tuk-tuk between town and this property and you feel like you are in another world. It's absolutely incredible. You're surrounded by rice patties. Everyone has their own villa. The pool is stunning and the two restaurants on property are really amazing. And my favorite part of it was, you'll probably have guessed this, but the sundowner deck where you can just sit, watch the sunset every single evening and have a cocktail at the end of a day of touring. Amazing. I've actually stayed at two of the Indigari Door properties that you mentioned, the Raffles Hotel and Amansara, which are really close by each other. Raffles is the most historic. When I went the first time in 1998, it was the only place to stay. And it is very grand and old school and has a lot of history to it. Amansara, as you know, was the private villa of the King Sihanouk before the Cambodian Civil War. And it was turned into a small Amman hotel and is very beautiful and serene and contemporary and minimalist. Another favorite that 
I have stayed at in the past but is no longer open at the moment is the Belmont Seam Reap. I, I know that that is closed for the moment and it's unclear when it will reopen. And Siem Reap also happens to be a location where you can stay really well for not a lot of money. And some of the more budget-oriented luxury hotels, and when I say budget, that's in quotes. I'm talking, you know, under $400 a night versus maybe $900 to $1,200 per night. So these options include the V-Roths Hotel. There's also Jaya House. And Treeline is another one that is really well-located and a great option for a more budget client. And I know, Melissa, you love Maison Polanco, which is another one that comes in a little bit under those big three, Amansara, Raffles, and Pumbaitong. Yep, absolutely. And Catherine, I want to know what it's like to visit Cambodia right now, because their tourism, as Gina mentioned, has not come back to the levels that it was pre-COVID, which was sort of overwhelming. I mean, it was so crowded at many points that people really had to think about going in the off season, not to be, you know, with thousands and thousands of people at sunrise. So can you talk about what it's like to be there right now? I think it seems like a good opportunity to visit. Yeah. When I was at Anchor, I was told that the crowds were at one fifth of what they used to be. I did hear that they had a really strong festive season. So I do think for those two weeks over the holidays, Christmas, New Year's, they did start to see crowds coming back. But in general, they're still seeing fewer crowds, and it's a really exceptional time to be at Anchor and to visit Siem Reap. And how does Siem Reap feel? Because it was hit really hard. It's very, its economy is based on tourism, and there were no tourists for many, many months. How does that affect the traveler's visit and experience? I don't think it really impacted my visit, but what I did notice is that there were a ton of closures. So places that I was told were somebody's, you know, favorite restaurant in Siem Reap wasn't there anymore. So now we have new favorites. And it also inspired a lot of new openings. There are some new shops that you can visit in Siem Reap. And from the hotel perspective, many of them are reopening. The only one that hasn't of what we've mentioned so far is the Belmont. And so can you mention a, one or two of your favorite shops that you discovered or, or restaurants? Yes, I would say there is an amazing food tour in Siem Reap. That was one of my highlights of my week there with this woman named Evie Ellie. And she does the concept behind it is that in a lot of cities, when you hear food tour, you're usually going to food stands or markets. But in Siem Reap, there's so many amazing restaurants and usually travelers are going for just maybe three nights. So you can only eat at so many. So on her tour, you go to a restaurant for an appetizer, a different restaurant for the entree, and a different restaurant for dessert, which is a really fun concept. And she actually opened up a new store called Satu, which is a great Cambodian concept store in the town of Siem Reap. And I would say that was one of my favorite discoveries of this past trip. Some of my other favorite shops include Eric Racina, which I know you love too, and Louise Lubatier. And restaurants or dining experiences, there are so many others to list, but I loved my meal at Maison Polanca, Sugar Palm, cocktails at Miss Wong, and Cuisine Wat Damnak for a more fine dining experience. Fantastic. And for people who are going to see Angkor, you and I both have traveled within Cambodia beyond Siem Reap to places like Phnom Penh and to other areas. What do you think is a perfect itinerary? I would say people have to give themselves three to four nights in Siem Reap. Absolutely. And there's a really easy flight from the U.S., especially if you're coming from New York. You can go Singapore Airlines direct to Singapore and then fly right into Siem Reap. So you don't need to go into the capital of Phnom Penh before flying over to Siem Reap. It has its own international airport. 
So what does that itinerary look like? How much time are people spending in the archaeological park versus around the town of Siem Reap? There are definitely highlights. People want to see Angkor Wat, the big temple monument that the whole park is named after. They're going to want to go to some of the most famous temples like Bayan and Tapram. And I think it's important definitely to have a guide so you can work out in advance which are the temples that you most want to see that are sort of among the the greatest hits, I would say. Going to see Angkor Wat at sunrise is a very special experience for sure. But as Gina said, you also want to get off the beaten path. So I would say, you know, Two half days hitting the greatest hits, so going in the park and seeing some of the more famous and they're going to be more crowded ones, but then also have at least two half days where you're going to some of the smaller temples that don't have crowds that are further out. I did a great bike ride with my kids out to the countryside and we did a hike and then we ended up at this tiny temple where there was nobody and it was really like a Raiders of the Lost Ark moment. I think you definitely want to go out on a boat cruise and see the floating villages on Tanle Sap, which is the largest freshwater lake in Southeast Asia. If you've got the budget, it's really amazing to do a morning helicopter flight over the whole thing because it's very hard to get a sense of the scale of the size. I mean, Angkor was a city that was larger than Paris in the 9th or 10th century. It had tens of thousands of people living in it, and people think it's just one or two temples. It was an enormous complex, and it covered a lot of ground, and you get a sense of that from a helicopter. And sometimes you can even do a helicopter trip where you land at a really remote temple, which is super a special thing to do. And there's really neat things to do, as you mentioned, in terms of dining in Siem Reap and visiting artisan cooperatives in Siem Reap is really special. I loved, I've been able to go to the Conservation Dancor which is basically a government warehouse where they keep some of the amazing treasures that have been found in the park that are too fragile and special to be kept open to the public. And you can go into the storerooms and it's incredible. They'll show you flasks of perfume bottles that they found from the ninth century or vases and smaller things that are just incredible glass bottles from you know the ninth century. They're a thousand years old and you can still see the perfume traces in it. So there's some really neat things within Seam Reap that are not part of just going and seeing temples. And I highly recommend doing that. Yeah, there's also a booming art scene. I loved visiting Team's Gallery. I thought that was a really special visit. And uh, of course, the shopping. So you can really spend like a half day easily just wandering around CM Reap. So you want to give yourself time to do that. And I wanted to mention, because totally I know that Gina spoke about Phnom Bikind, the temple that's under restoration by WMF, and a little hidden secret that I think a lot of people don't know about in Anchor is that you go to Anchor Wat for sunrise, but you actually go to Phnom Bikind for sunset. So that's a really nice way to cap a day. Super tip there. Thank you, Catherine. It is at the highest point of Anchor. It's the temple that is located the highest. And you went in November? I went in November, yeah. Which is the beginning of what they say, that dry season, the ideal season. So I've been in November and then also in February and in March when it was starting to get hot. But another secret time that people like going is in July, which is really the rainy season. But apparently you have a lot of afternoon rain showers. But it means you get really bright, clear, beautiful mornings. Wow. And it's not as crowded. 
Yeah, that, I mean, that is really key. When I was watching the sunrise, I was told that that was a fifth as crowded as usual. So I truly can't imagine what it looks like when it's at normal capacity. Yeah. And Gina and I talked about the fact that they might start limiting which temples people can go to um, almost in a, a lottery kind of system because it's just the overcrowding is so severe. And to recap how you should organize a four-day trip in Siem Reap, you could easily do a highlight day, but you are really only scratching the surface if you do that at anchor. There's so much more to do. So splitting it up into those half days so you don't exhaust yourself at the temples is a nice way to go about it. Yeah, definitely. Most people do other things when they go to Angkor, especially if they're coming from the States. They're going to combine it with a visit to other places within Cambodia or to Vietnam or to Laos or Thailand. There's lots of different places that you can add on. But Catherine, I know you went to a very special place that I have not yet visited. Can you tell us a little bit about where you went after your visit to Angkor? Yes, I would say I am now the preacher of the Cambodia circuit. There is more to Cambodia than just Angkor. You can go visit the capital in Phnom Penh. There are some amazing hotels there, and there's some really interesting historical touring you can do, learning about the genocide. So a lot of deep profound touring, but a really important touring to do and to incorporate on a trip to Cambodia. Yeah, and I will throw in, I've done that. And one really neat thing, which I didn't mention, is you can combine going to Phnom Penh and then taking a river cruise on the Mekong up to Siem Reap. Oh, you did and that? Then, yeah, okay. I did the, the nice. amazing on the Aqua wow. Mekong. But go back to Phnom Penh Yes, it is a very special place. So I just did a quick night there with a half day of touring, and there was so much more to do and see. I wish I had given myself at least two days there. I will now fast forward to one of my favorite experiences in Cambodia. I was lucky, and I got to spend two nights at Shintamani Wild, which is in the Cardamon Rainforest. They had just built a new road connecting this area of Cambodia to Phnom Penh. So it takes two, two and a half hours to get there by road transfer. This hotel, it's as if you're at an African lodge in the bush. It is quiet. It is peaceful. You're nestled in the forest. The tents were designed by Bill Bensley. We have to have him on the show, actually. He is incredible. Yeah, we definitely have to get him on the show. He also did the Four Seasons Golden Triangle, the Capella Boud. I think he's the most prolific five-star hotel designer in the world. Wow. He's done so many of the most luxurious hotels all over the world, and they all have different personalities. And Shantamani Wild is his baby. Yes. And this is really his passion project. So, I mean, the property could not be cooler. You literally arrive in by zip line. There is no better hotel arrival, I don't think, in the world. So you show up, they put you in a harness, and you are off to the races to get into the lodge, which again is just nestled and hidden in the forest. You couldn't see it even if you were flying over by helicopter. It beautifully blends in with the landscape. The design of the entire camp is incredible. There are only 15 actual tents, so it's a really intimate experience. And your itinerary throughout your time there is filled with, first of all, unlimited spa experiences, which you can't really get that anywhere else. And one of the most special activities while you're at the camp is actually going out with the anti-poaching patrol unit searching for poachers on mopeds. So the activities are really endless. You know, you can go out with a butterfly specialist. You can go on a waterfall hike. There's incredible birding, fishing. You can go ziplining as much as you want. And then the foraging and there's cooking classes. And what I really loved is that they call their main lodge headquarters. 
So you're immediately upon arrival just in the spirit of adventure. You are really there to explore, unwind. And it's also partly a conservation project. So you're joining the team to protect this landscape, right? Yes. Totally conservation-based. Yes, and you feel that from the second that you arrive. Like every activity that you do, you're helping, which is just a really special, immediate give-back moment that you can have when staying at this property. Yeah, no, we've got to get Bill Bensley on. I remember talking to him about this project, and he had just had Ed Sheeran's day. Yes, actually, by the main bar, there is an Ed Sheeran and Justin Bieber sign uh, with their signatures on it. Yeah, he said he was the nicest guy. I think he went there maybe even for part of his honeymoon. I got to get there. You've got to get there. And then also there's the beach, which we didn't talk about. And neither of us have been there, but there are some really spectacular options on the beach. Cambodian beaches often get overlooked by Thailand or even Vietnam. But you could go and you could stay at this resort called Song Sa. And then there's also a Six Senses, which is on the beach. Thank you, Catherine. Great to hear that Siem Reap is still as charming as I have always thought it to be. And you've given me a new reason to go back to Cambodia. Yes, maybe an insider journey next year. Maybe. We did one a couple years ago. You did? It was great. Yeah, on the Mekong. Amazing. Well, you've got to get back and you've got to go to Shintamani Wild. Sounds fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I want to thank Ginevra Boato for being with us today and taking the time to discuss the World Monuments Fund and her work preserving Angkor. Coming up on the show, I'll be taking you to Antarctica, Charleston, and many other destinations. In the meantime, please call with your questions and leave a message at 646-535-7297 or send me a note on Instagram at Indigari Travel, or write us an email at passport at SiriusXM.com. The adventure continues next week. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs-Bradley streaming now on all podcast platforms. And anytime on the SXM app. Follow Melissa on Instagram at at Indigari Founder. And for more on Melissa, head to Indigari.com. I-N-D-A-G-A-R-E. Send us your questions about travel. Passport at SiriusXM.com. Or call us at 646-535-7297. This has been Passport to Everywhere. everywhere.